hope you understand that Jesus' triumph over His enemies is our triumph over our enemies. Now let me repeat that to make sure you heard what I said as well as for emphasis. Jesus' triumph over His enemies is our triumph over our enemies. Our text for today, chapter 10 of Zechariah, uh, it gives us some of the additional blessings that will result for us as God's people if we are willing to turn to and accept Jesus as our Messiah. I know you thought I was going to say Savior, didn't you? No. I said, accept Jesus as our Messiah. In fact, chapter 10 is very closely connected to the victorious conclusion of chapter 9 where we read, On that day the Lord their God will save them as the flock of His people. And this morning, we're going to continue to develop this idea of the shepherd king. Looking specifically as, at the, the shepherd and his flock. Or the concept of what is entailed in being the shepherd's flock. Because of what we know happened on Monday, Thursday, the Last Supper, in which Jesus identified Himself as the Passover Lamb, the new commandment that He gave to love. Oh, wait a minute. The Old Testament says to love. The Old Testament even said to love your neighbor. So what was new? Jesus said, love your neighbor as I love. It was a type of love that was new. Demonstrated in the life and the death of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The admonition for us to serve others. I don't think Jesus meant that we're to carry around a basin of water and a towel and every time we see somebody say, hey, take your shoes off, let me wash your feet. But, but you realize what He did, don't you? The disciples had been set, up, set ahead to get everything ready for the Last Supper. Everything ready, He said. And they forgot something. And I think the reason why they forgot that is because of what we're told. We're told that they were still arguing over who's the greatest. And what they forgot was making sure that somebody was there to wash the feet of the people as they came in. Which was not only a tradition, it was a need. Their streets were not paved. And their streets were used for animals walking. Dirty, dusty feet with maybe something else involved too. And when they recline to eat, don't think in terms of a dining room table with chairs. Think of a real short table at which they laid leaning on one arm and the person next to them as they ate. Which meant, not the one right next to you, but the next one probably, his feet were pretty close behind you. But they forgot all about it. 
So what did Jesus do? He shed his outer garments, took a towel, and did the task that was normally assigned to the lowest of all the servants. And Good Friday, the crucifixion, the cries of Jesus from the cross. Can you imagine being there, being one of those soldiers that had driven those nails? And then hearing Jesus say, Forgive him, Father. He didn't know what he was doing. It had to have crushed. No wonder that centurion said, Surely this is the Son of God. And like Rich said, To tell us die. It's finished. What was finished? The work that he was sent to do. The temptation that had been with him ever since the garden. Yeah. And especially in the wilderness. You see, sometimes we don't think those were real temptations. Because it wouldn't tempt me for anybody to say, hey, Chauncey, turn that rock into bread. Uh, yeah, right. But Jesus could have done it. And if He would have done it, that little loaf that would have been produced from a little rock that I understand from those who have been there look like little loaves, who in a poor and desolate, and desolate country wouldn't have followed somebody that could feed them from all of those rocks? He wouldn't have had to have gone to the cross. <laughs> and if he jumped down from the top of the pinnacle of the temple, I promise you, if some Sunday I announced I was jumping off the roof of this building, there'd be a crowd out there to watch a fool die. But Jesus could have done it and not died. And who wouldn't have followed Him if He had done that? See, they were real temptations. Shortcuts so that He wouldn't have to go to the cross. And guess what? The Satan adversary deceiver wasn't lying when He said, you worship me and I'll give you all of these kingdoms. Because my Bible tells me that God has given this world to Satan for him to rule. I hear people all the time say, well, God's in charge. No, He isn't. Go back and read. Three times Jesus says, Satan is the ruler of this world. Now, God ultimately wins the battle, doesn't He? And there's no battle. Have you heard people talk about the battle of Armageddon? Look at a map, a real map, a true map. There's no Armageddon in the first place. And when those forces of evil come together, there's no battle. It's a spoken word. That's all. I don't call a spoken word, you're gone, a battle. 
We need to be students of God's Word. And the devil could have given the kingdoms of the world to Jesus just like he said. But Jesus said no. Three times. The Son of God, three times. How did he respond to temptation? It is written. It is written. It is written. That's why I tell you to be students of the Bible. Not just because I want you to do a lot of reading. It's because the only way we can overcome temptation, the only way we can overcome evil, the only way we can overcome serious doubts and questions and problems is by knowing God's Word and having it dwell within us. Man, I wish this morning I could look over and sitting, he would have been about a row behind you two, Rich and Cindy. He was there every Sunday, he and his wife. Cecil and Geneva Van Lowe. I wish I could look over and see him, but I'm going to see him again someday. But there wasn't a topic that ever came up that I don't remember Cecil saying, well, you know, God's Word says. And he would quote passages out of God's Word. We need to be students of God's Word, but listen to me. In those three temptations... Who else quoted Scripture? Satan did. Now, he took the passage out of context, which is why you hear me, whenever you hear me teach, say, context, context, context. But Satan knows the Bible. In fact, Satan knows in his head, intellectually, conceptually knows that there is a God and knows that Jesus was the Son of God. Read the Gospel of Mark this afternoon if you don't have anything to do. It won't take you all afternoon. Jesus is correctly identified more often by the demons than He is by the believers. Now, why am I emphasizing that? Because I hear people all the time say, well, all you got to do is believe to be saved. That's not what the Bible says. We've got to be students of God's Word. Go back to Revelation. It says over and over again, we're going to be judged by our works. We're going to be judged by what we do as an outflow of what we say we believe. I think it's a judgment of authenticity and integrity, not a balancing. Well, you did more good than you did bad, so you're okay. And we're going to be judged by whether or not our name is in the book of life. Not the books, plural. But our works are important. James said what? You tell me you believe that you have faith? And you can do that without doing anything. I will show you by my works that I believe. With all of that in mind, we need to keep reminding ourselves that Jesus' triumph over His enemies is our triumph over our enemies. And I want to tell you this morning that there is no happier, 
No more prosperous condition that can take place in your life. In Zechariah's thinking, no greater blessing can result than the restoration which the Messiah would bring about when he returns as Israel's shepherd king. You know, if I get to the end of my life and there is no life after death, I haven't lost a thing by living the life that we live. In fact, I've been saved from a lot of pains. So, with all of this in mind, as I mentioned on Thursday night, for those of you that weren't here then, did you ever stop to think of why Jesus chose Passover instead of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement? If you study the Old Testament, you'll find out that the Day of Atonement was the day for the forgiveness of sins. And, and I think that Jesus' death on the cross and His resurrection did accomplish the forgiveness of our sins if we are trustworthy and obedient and loyal to Him and accept Him as our Lord and Savior. But Jesus didn't choose the Day of Atonement. He chose Passover. Now here's my point. Yes, Jesus died so that our sins could be forgiven. No question. But what took place when they nailed Him on the cross is that He conquered death. Setting us free from that painful sting. He triumphed over death so that we too can claim victory over death. I said to several people the last two days when I would share the story of my cousin Kathleen. And you need to know as a congregation, I would not have chosen the surgery. I would have said, no, let me go home and have these days with my family. I'm not choosing death. Death has chosen me. My cousin has a hard course ahead of her, a painful course ahead of her. And that's her choice and I will honor her with it. <coughs> but Jesus triumphed over death so that we too can claim victory over death. We don't have to fear death as if it were an enemy. Jesus' triumph over His enemies is our triumph over our enemies. And when He was lifted up on that cross, He was also the victorious Messiah. He was crowned King of Kings. When I am lifted up, Jesus said, I'll draw all persons unto Me. Our friend Percy. I got a call again yesterday from Fran. They still haven't found out if in fact it is an infection or not. There's something going on. He's still in the hospital. Had to go back in. But his attitude remains positive. 
He's with us at all of our services. He was with us Friday night. Friends said we, we were a part of the Good Friday service. Because Percy knows that death is not the enemy. The enemy is Satan. The adversary. And the enemy is fear. If he can get you afraid, he's conquered you. By death, Jesus conquered Rome. Think about that. All of the power and all of the might that Rome had was defeated by Jesus allowing them to put Him on the cross. And that, my friends, is prophesied about all the way back in Isaiah and the minor prophets and Zechariah. In fact, Jesus' death and resurrection finally confirmed the blessings that had been promised to Israel during the days of the prophets. Though they had returned to Jerusalem, they never experienced the blessing of the end of the exile. See, the exile wasn't over. They needed a second exodus. They needed to be liberated from the slavery of the exile. But Zechariah and other prophets as well proclaimed that the freedom that they were longing for, the presence of God in their midst, had to wait for another 400 years until the coming of the Messiah. N.T. Wright, in his book, Jesus and the Victory of God, writes these words. Would any serious thinking first century Jew claim that the promises of Isaiah 40 to 66 or of Jeremiah, Ezekiel, or Zechariah had been fulfilled? That the power and domination of paganism had been broken? That God had already returned to Zion? That the covenant had been renewed and Israel's sins forgiven? That the long-awaited new exodus had happened? That the second temple was the true, final, and perfect one? Or in other words, that the exile was really over? And the obvious answer is no. And you can even read that in the writings of many of the first century Jewish rabbis. Now my key verse for today. A verse that I want you to hear from our text is verse 6. I will bring them back because I have compassion on them. And they shall be as though I had not rejected them. As the prophet Hosea had proclaimed for I am the Lord their God and I will answer them chapter 10 verse 6 so here's our text for today ask rain from the Lord in the season of the spring rain from the Lord who makes the storm clouds and he'll give them showers of rain to everyone, the vegetation in the field, 
For the household gods utter nonsense, and the diviners see lies. They tell false dreams and give empty consolation. Therefore the people wander like sheep. They're afflicted for lack of a shepherd. Sound like something Jesus said just before he fed the 5,000? My anger is hot against the shepherds, and I'll punish the leaders. For the Lord of hosts cares for his flock, the house of Judah, and will make them like his majestic steed in battle. From him shall the cornerstone, from him the tent peg, from him the battle bow, from him every ruler, all of them together, they shall be like mighty men in battle, trampling the foe in the mud of the streets. They shall fight because the Lord is with them, and they shall put to shame the riders on horses. I'll strengthen the house of Judah. I'll serve the house of Jacob, Joseph. I will bring them back because I have compassion on them. They shall be as though I had not rejected them. For I am the Lord their God and I will answer them. Then Ephraim shall become like a mighty warrior. And their hearts shall be glad as with wine. Their children shall see it and be glad. Their hearts shall rejoice in the Lord. I will whistle for them and gather them in for I have redeemed them and they shall be as many as they were before though I scattered them among the nations yet in far countries they shall remember me and with their children they shall live and return I will bring them home from the land of Egypt and gather them from Assyria and I'll bring them to the land of Gilead and to Lebanon till there is no room for them He shall pass through the sea of troubles and strike down the waves of the sea and all the depths of the Nile shall be dried up. The pride of Assyria shall be laid low and the scepter of Egypt shall depart. I will make them strong in the Lord and they shall walk in His name, declares the Lord. May God add His blessing to our reading of His word. The first thing that I hope you picked up on from our text is that we serve a God who hears and responds. I've heard many people in my lifetime say something like this. I don't think God hears me. I prayed, but God didn't answer. Really? Or did God just not answer in the way we were demanding that He answer? In his sermon notes for a message based on our text for today, uh, Charles Spurgeon, great minister of the past, uh, a sermon titled Perfect Restoration. He quotes a man by the name of Ralph Cudworth who was a theological intellect of, of his day. Ralph reminded his readers that the end of the gospel is life and perfection. It is to make us partakers of the image of God in righteousness and true holiness. But here's the line that caught my attention. God Himself cannot make me happy if He be only without me. Unless he gives me a participation of himself and his own likeness unto his soul. 
Alexander Campbell would write basically the same thing. He said that in order to understand the Word, in order just to understand the will of God, we have to come within hearing distance of it. What was he saying? We can't understand it as an outsider. We understand it when we live it. Some of you have experienced that. You've done something that was according to the Word, either for the good or for the bad, and you've been reminded, oh, this is what God said. This is what God said in His Word. Verse 1 emphasizes that it is the Lord's provision that brings us for fruitfulness. Ask rain from the Lord. He'll give them. In fact, not only that, but He'll give them showers, sun thunderstorms to bring vegetation. And verse 1 builds on the thought of, of what chapter 9, 17 ended with. It's how great is His goodness? How great is His beauty? These things come from God. And they come from God when we're willing to humble ourselves and pray. That's repeated more than once in the Old Testament. If my people who are called by my name would humble themselves and pray, I'll hear from heaven and respond. You see, it's in answer to believing prayer. And notice his use of the word ask. God stands ready to respond to those who ask Him and seek Him. The promises of God are turned into positive experiences by the faith and the prayers of His people. The problem is that in the past... Israel had not acknowledged God. Jesse and I have been reading through the Old Testament. We finally made it through 2 Chronicles. <laughs> but over and over again, this king followed in the ways of his father and did what was right in God's eyes. This guy, king didn't. And when trouble came, it's like, oh, God, we're sorry. And God responded. God responded. And the blessing of abundant physical and spiritual blessing, He says, is to each person. What you need as a blessing, what you need as a blessing, I might not need as a blessing. So why would He give it to me? It's individualized. He gives you what you need. And there's a big contrast between verse 2 and verse 1. Prayer asked of the Lord brings tangible results for those who seek the Lord in faith and obedience, but not for others. As far as I can see in the Scripture, there is only one prayer that God promises to answer for the non-believer. Only one. Be merciful to me a sinner. You see, even though they might say they re represent God, there are a lot of false evangelists out here right now. A well-known television evangelist out of Texas 
openly in an interview said, he doesn't preach about sin. That's negative. That just brings people down. Doesn't help them to live their best life. That was the problem of the false shepherds in Zechariah's day. A true shepherd's going to be instructing people to repent of sin, to plead with the Lord that their circumstances, such as drought, you see, both physical and spiritual circumstances might be changed. Peter in 1 Peter chapter 1 informs us that any vision, any dream, any interpretation that contradicts God's word, even if it is scientifically supported, supposedly, would not bring about God's response. Peter warns that there will be a surge, in fact, of fake prophecies, lying visions, false dreams. And the consequences of the superstitious practices are clarified in the second half of verse 2 and verse 3. Therefore the people wander like sheep. They're afflicted for a lack of a shepherd. And my anger is hot against the false shepherds. I'll punish the leaders. For the Lord of hosts cares for his flock. The house of Judah. You see, the first result is the people wander. Aren't we living in a society, a culture where people are just wandering about in search of something and they don't know what and so they continue to wander? And the second was that it wasn't because there were no shepherds. There were shepherds, but they were false shepherds. Faithless leaders. But fortunately, verse 3, our God is a God of compassion. For the Lord of hosts cares for His flock. And I already read for you verse 6. And because God is a God of compassion, boy, that point went quick, didn't it? Zechariah says He's also going to redeem. And this is what this week is all about. Verses 8-11, to Zechariah offers a second extended picture of salvation that would come from and under the Messiah. God in the flesh, returning to dwell with His people. And he envisions a great gathering of God's people. And the picture is developed in three stages. First, the promise of the gathering in verse 8. He would gather them by a whistle, like a shepherd might do to attract the sheep, or, or a beekeeper might do to keep his, get his bees to swarm. And those who are gathered are those who previously are redeemed by the power of the Lord. Most likely, I think that's a reference to the gatherings of the people of God out of the world by the gospel message, the good news. The body of redeemed people would increase, he says, as they have increased. Just as ancient Israel grew so much in Egypt, so would the New Testament Israel, the people of God, the church. But notice in verse 9, that there is a prelude to the gathering. The redeemed are gathered into one body. Then, however, we're told that God would sow them among the peoples. Not another exile. No, this is a sowing 
for increase. I believe this corresponds to how the church of Jesus Christ has been gathered out of the world of sin in order to be sent into the world of lost humanity to preach the good news. And the results of the evangelistic efforts of the church are set forth in three clauses. First, in far distant places they'll remember me. Secondly, they'll live, not just eternally, but remembering the Lord in obedient faith would bring spiritual renewal, a new birth, and life, abundant life. I'm told that the old preacher one day was talking about his sermons and he said to somebody else that uh, one of the things that he was really hoping for was that by means of his sermons that they would be revived and then he said instead of born again he misspoke and he said but instead I think my people were bored again I mean born again it's what I want abundant life they'll live is the Old Testament way of announcing that abundant life. And thirdly, they'll return. They'll return. These words further explain the meaning of remember. It's a picture of a gathering. And the gathering is pictured so great. Listen to me because this is important. The gathering is pictured as so great that we cannot think in terms of a little piece of land in the Middle East known as Israel. No. New Testament message is not that the nation of Israel in the Middle East is going to be restored and be a new nation. The message of the New Testament is that we are the new Israel, the church, and we will become a great kingdom. And from the description Zechariah gives, the Middle East wouldn't even hold all the people that he's talking about. There's another thing, though, that I think we need to see real quickly, and I'll bring it to a conclusion. Just as God led ancient Israel through the Red Sea to freedom. So we're told again that this exodus, this new exodus that Zechariah is talking about with Christ would be accomplished by passing through a sea. But he talks about it in terms of a, a sea of affliction. In fact, Zechariah says that God would cross over the sea that through suffering he would make a path to freedom for those who are held captive in sin. And that's why we're here today. <clears throat> through the suffering of the cross, God made it possible for people to be set free from the bondage of sin and death. It's not Friday. It's Sunday. The tomb is empty. Death has been defeated. So let me ask one more time. Why Passover for the crucifixion and resurrection? 
Well, see, I believe that the point for choosing Passover instead of the Day of Atonement is that the Lord is making it possible for everybody who is held captive in one way or another to find freedom. Freedom from addictions. Freedom from habits that have been demeaning and have brought them down. Freedom from pain and suffering. Freedom from the many sins that we are held captive by. A second exodus. The drying up of the river suggests that the demise of the oppressors would happen for God's people. You see, you can put behind these things that are trying to hold you captive as you proclaim your loyalty, your faith in Jesus as the Messiah. And so today, in His resurrection, we need to remember that Jesus won a smashing victory over the forces of sin and darkness. The devil and his host have been defeated. And I hope I've said it enough that it sticks. Jesus' triumph over His enemies is our triumph over our enemies. So look again at verse 12 because herein is the challenge. The challenge for you and I as we depart from this building today as the church. The challenge for you and I is to live in strength and walk in His name. Why? Because He lives. Let's sing. Sorry I didn't give you a better warning, Cindy. <laughs>